A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. In 1975, a fledgling think tank called the Institute for Fiscal Studies created a committee to re-examine the British tax system. The man charged with the job was promptly given the Nobel Prize. His two assistants went on to become Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, and John Kay, our guest today on the CapEx podcast. John went on to run the Institute for Fiscal Studies, building it into the most respected uh, outfit in economic uh, analysis. He founded the Oxford Business School. He's taught at Oxford and at London. He's been a commentator for the Financial Times for, for many years. Um, and I guess is probably one of the leading champions and critics of the of the free market in, in Britain. He's one of the people you turn to to understand why the market is a is a good thing and also where it's going wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an introduction I very much like, apart from the flattery, uh, <laughs> because saying um, that markets are, in an obvious sense, the only word game in town, that all successful, prosperous economies have been, in a loose sense, market economies. Uh, but there are different kinds of market economy. What we mean by a market economy is not that clear and the kind of what has become caricatured. Well, people have car- people in favour of it have caricatured it, in effect, as you should encourage people to be extremely greedy and allow them to do whatever they like. That isn't actually an economic system that works. In fact, the countries which really are like that, Nigeria, as it were, are not exemplars of what economic effectiveness and prosperity is about. Markets operate in a social context, and unless we understand that, we understand very little. Yes, because I mean the the sort of narrative in politics at the moment um, is essentially that the public has lost faith in markets. That um, you know, polling suggests that uh, they'd happily they'd happily nationalise the banks, the energy companies. You know, they don't they don't understand why private firms should should run run things. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's party conference speech was essentially a five thousand word PM to the joys of state direction. He was saying, you know, things like um, automation is a great challenge, and the only way that we can cope with it is to have it guided and managed and controlled by by the public. It, it is strange, isn't it, that we are where we are in part because of the failures of that kind of approach um, in the 20, 30 years after, after the war. And I was very struck that, uh, you know, if you look at the 
the leaders of the new radical left in major countries. You have um, uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States, born 1943. Jeremy Corbyn, born 1958. Melanchthon in France, born 1951. Sometimes I look at Jeremy Corbyn, and I think he thinks what I thought when I was 17 is just I feel I've learned a bit since then. Yes, I mean, he hasn't. I mean, I mean, reading, it's astonishing if you read, I mean, well, Bernie Sanders, I've read his, his autobiography, and, you know, he is, he, he is making the same speech in 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010. It's just the sort of the names of the, the bad people have, have changed. Yeah. And uh, the trouble is that, you know, when the wall went down in 1989, and Francis Fukuyama talked famously about the end of history. Essentially, that a combination of lightly regulated capitalism and liberal democracy was kind of here to stay, and there was an inevitable there was an inevitability about that. Um, not only being the system of choice in Western countries, but something the world would inevitably move towards. And that looks. Uh, quite unlikely today. Uh, it's under threat in Western democracies in a way it's never been uh, before in that period. And it's not proved the route to development that a lot of country, poorer countries have chosen. Uh, and I think this goes back to, we need to understand better how it is that markets work, understand that social context. The view of markets that's become dominant is one as I described it, selfish people being allowed to do more or less whatever they like. Uh, that's both repellent to most thoughtful people, and it's also false as a description of how markets really operate. Yes, I mean, I mean, the, there's actually an argument, isn't there? The, the, the market is that is is oddly one of the most ethical things because what you're doing, you know, what you're doing is trusting other people. You are trusting, you know, Britain is trusting that other countries will grow the food and and sell it the food so that so that we don't need to be self-sufficient you know you are trusting that when you buy something from amazon it will be sent to you by 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 the other person you know the whole, the whole thing you know and there's there's all sorts of stat, statistics aren't there? that are showing that you know in countries where people don't trust each other they are poorer because of it yes that's right i mean in these kind of transparency international or world value surveys there's a very clear color correlation between levels of trust and levels of prosperity uh, very clear correlation between inverse correlation between levels of corruption and prosperity. It's where you become well off by doing things that are valuable to other people, rather than by taking money from them. Uh, that uh, you become rich, and in um, in many poorer countries, uh, market economies fail because they're essentially. Uh, kleptocracies, both private and public. Uh, in Western economies, it's more subtle, but the rise of rent-seeking behavior across the West is one of the numerous obstacles to the effective functioning of a market economy. And that's something that was well illustrated by, by the banking system. We've, got, we've acquired a system of trading it is really an incubus on the market economy, a cost that, that it has to, has to bear. And it almost fell apart in 2008. So you'd, you'd favour the separation of the casino and the... Absolutely, I'm right. It's a, it's a powerful metaphor and one that is, I think, essential. 
and the casino activities, they wouldn't disappear altogether, and it's um, not desirable that they should disappear because some sort of speculative gambling, bluntly, type activity can help stabilise markets. But actually, when the bulk of market activity becomes speculative gambling of that kind, which is what has been true for the last 20 years, then that's destabilising, not stabilising. And that's what we learned in 2008. But presumably, these views haven't been terribly fashionable at at various points. No, there is is no nuanced account or, or no widely understood nuanced account of how it is that markets work. So you have a polarization between neoliberalism on the one hand and Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders on on the other. So I mean, I'm just interested to hear you talk about this sort of social and sort of almost moral component because, of course, you're you're from a Scottish background, yes. I think, and there's a, there's obviously a very very long tradition of sort of moral philosophy in, in in Scotland of people thinking about actually you know you could lump in Gordon Brown you know people who think about the the market but also think about how to use the market in a as a as a as a social good. Yeah, I guess that's right, and it goes right back to Adam Smith, who's now for. Many people on the far right, most of whom haven't read a word that Adam Smith actually wrote, <laughs> is regarded as this um, uh, uh, bastion and, 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 of, of extreme and, and, liberalism. And around in a kind of in a curly wig. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, there are two big points to be made. One is if you read uh, much of the Wealth of Nations, far less as other books like Theory of Moral Sentiments. Where the clues kind of... You're, in the you, you write the clues in the title, yes. Um, he understood how important social relations were uh, to governing behaviour and indeed to economic behaviour. Uh, and also you realise, of course, that the kind of economy he was writing about in 1776 was very different from the kind of economy we have in 2017. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, but, but I mean, that kind of moral, I mean, if you actually go back and look, look at what Margaret Thatcher said, you know, she combined this sort of messianic belief in, in markets with a, with a very sort of powerful moral, moral case. I think that's right. And I can't imagine that she would have felt comfortable on the trading floor of an investment bank, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, she had to be actually. I think she had to be persuaded about Big Bang because she always liked the she liked the entrepreneurs, but she was you know the the, the sort of um, the Jimmy Goldsmith types with who were kind of going around doing big deals. But she wasn't so so keen yeah. on the, the sort of traditional fustier. And looking back on it, Big Bang was it wasn't actually. It would be too simple to say it was a mistake, and um, there had to be big changes in the regulation of our financial system, if only to cope with what had become a globalised world. Uh, But equally in particular, I think the big undesirable effect of Big Bang was that we allowed financial conglomerates to come into being that encompassed a whole range of financial activities, um, which had previously been prevented by insistence on siloing different activities so that home loans were made by building societies and banks ran our current accounts and insurance companies provided insurance and so on. And that created both a a more stable financial system and one that was better adapted, was better at focusing on the needs of underlying users for financial services. 
but on, I mean, on that, some, there's an, there's an argument which, which I've heard, which is that the instead that actually what the, the banking model we have at the moment is 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 dying off anyway. That um, you know, it's, the, the various functions of the traditional big bank are being sort of disrupted or taken by taken by others. You know, you can get a more, you can get sort of you can get a bank account now from Tesco. You can get you can do loans via other. You know, that, that all of these yeah. functions are being. Uh, that's true, but in some ways, it's not true enough. And one of the malign effects of regulation is actually it tends to freeze existing structures. So the truth is, banks as almost as we've known them, and certainly as they, they have become, are dysfunctional institutions. Uh, but regulatory pressures operate to keep them in being. You're, we, we put a lot of effort into making it easier for people to set up new banks. But the price of setting up a new bank is it has to look very like an existing mm-hmm. bank. And it's not just banks. I mean, there's, uh, there's a whole... I mean, that is one of the sort of the sort of hidden things in the economy is just how hard it is to set up a construction firm or a solicitors or a you know a taxi firm as we're seeing yes. <laughs> recently. Uh, and this is partly this. Uh, well, it's largely the story of rent seeking by which um, established industries and lobbies are able to use political power to secure uh, entrenched positions for themselves. And at one end of the spectrum, we see that in the political power of investment banks. At the other end of the spectrum, we see it in the in the political power of traditional taxi drivers. So, so if you were magically appointed uh, chancellor uh, or ch- chancellor and prime minister with a with a with a solid <laughs> with a like, dictatorial, with a dictator- well, yes. yeah, with a, with a Tony Blair sized majority, I mean, what would your what would your sort of top five? Uh, Fixes me. You know, it's funny. Before I was appointed uh, prime minister and king and dictator <laughs> and so on, I think I would like to go go through the kind of educational process that we're starting to talk about, because we need to build up a constituency um, for this kind of market economy. To say that. Um, our economy does depend very heavily on morality, on trust relationships, on acceptance of the legitimacy of the structure of property rights, and so on. It's not a matter of leaving people alone to do whatever they like. And it's certainly not a matter of glorifying a greed or believing that money is the overwhelmingly dominant human motivation. It's not. It's a motivation. It's a perfectly proper motivation, but it's, for the vast majority of people, it's not an exclusive motivation. And the people who, for whom it is an exclusive motivation, actually, are kind of pathological people who ought not to be in charge of any important activities. Yes, I mean, what am I... One of my friends once uh, spent some time researching um, psych- psychopathic tendencies on trading floors and looking at personality profiles to see whether they could find uh, find any correlations. I'm not quite sure what happened. What to he the, did, what yes. the end results were. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, because yes, I mean, the, the the purpose of the market is not the profits that are made from it; it's the value that it. Yes, it the, that's right, and profit comes along the way. That's a fundamental point, which. Um, uh, and the era of shareholder value, I think, has done a great deal of damage and has, in the end, undermined the legitimacy of business activity in a very real way. 
Companies aren't there to make profits. Companies can't succeed unless they do make profits. But the, the social function of companies is to produce the goods and services we all want, to motivate their employees. And if they do these things, they will make profits. And that's the logic of the, the market economy. And it's a powerful logic, and when operating properly, is extremely effective. And actually, so um, we're ping-ponging your mouth a bit, but you, um, I think it was in 2012, was it? You, you actually carried out a review for the, for the government yeah. of, um, short, of short-termism and, in the, and long-termism in the financial markets, but also, you know, what the purpose of the financial market sh- should be. I mean, do you think that had had, had, had much impact? Or? Yeah, it's interesting. And, and when I did that work, and then when I went on afterwards to write the book Other People's Money that I published in 2015, I told people when I was writing that book that the object of the book was to, uh, was to ask what a financial system would look like if it was designed to meet the, the needs of users. And the number of people both inside and outside the financial system who said, particularly inside the financial system, who said, oh, that's a novel way of looking at it, <laughs> was very large. And it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, if you talked about another industry in a similar way, people would have said, of course, that's the, that's the only interesting question. In the purpose of Tesco and Sainsbury's to see how they serve their customers and how they can make profits by serving their customers. But they, they know that the way in which they do make profits is actually by serving their customers better. And that's, uh, and that's the power of the market. Whereas in the finance industry, you've got you know, PPI, the, the, um, the whole series of, sort of you know, the, what, the, what the crash uncovered, but also since then, is that if, if companies were profiting by making, you know, Barclays, for example, it set up its own, uh, you know, it, its own dark, its own pool of, um, you know, its, its own pool for people so that they wouldn't get ripped off by the high-frequency traders, and then it allowed a high-frequency trader to basically skim yeah. off the... Uh... No, uh, I mean, a lot of that was like um, supermarkets licensing pickpockets to go around their stores. It's quite extraordinary that you would think these were reasonable things to do. Or, or else you sort of see you see a customer walking down the aisle with a, with a sort of a fat wallet of money, and you quickly send someone out to double the price of the, uh, yeah. of the smoked salmon. <laughs> and that's a good analogy because there are a whole load of practices that people quite reasonably think are illegitimate in a market economy, and that you should raise the price when you see someone with a lot of money coming is not a, and it's just not appropriate behaviour because it undermines the whole kind of social acceptance and trust on which a properly functioning market economy um, operates. Although We uh, keep coming back yeah. to that point, but it's so fundamental. Although there's an interesting question then about what happens in the internet economy when you've got, you know, Amazon doesn't have to show me the same price it has to, sh- it has to show you. No, I know that. And I... Um, uh, I remember, I just found it an interesting exercise trying to book an airline ticket in the United States. And I found that the price depended on what computer you logged in from and whether you'd logged in before for that particular flight. Now, some of that is, uh, that kind of yield, some of that kind of yield management is quite useful. You know, the ways in which airlines are now able to know enough 
about what's going on to be able to, to discount prices when the flights are going to be empty and push them up when, um, when they're going to be full. And in the end, we will benefit from that kind of um, sensitivity of prices to demand. Uh, but that's very different from treating your customers on the basis that the question I'm asking is how much can I rip them off for? Because if you're a business that is there to make profits by serving its customers, you want your customers to, to trust you value and keep coming back. And the sad thing over the last decade or two, particularly in the financial system, but by no means confined to the financial system, is the extent to which consumers have been mistreated in these kind of ways, that their loyalty has been exploited uh, rather than rewarded. So it's interesting hearing you talk about this, because most people think about the, would say, you know, an, there's a line in, in one of your books, I think, uh, that when you, you, when you tell people that you're an economic, when you're an, that you're an economist, they ask you, what the, you know, what the, what's going to happen to exchange rates, and then you say, I'm not that kind of economist. And then yeah. they, they what other kinds and, of economists uh, is there? They, <laughs> yeah, they talk, yeah. turn around and talk to the person next to them. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's right, right when you say you're an economist. They turn, or they ask you what's going to happen while looking around to see whether there's a more interesting person to talk to on the other side. And the thing is, they ask you what's going to happen uh, without any real interest in the answer or expectation that you will know the answer. In fact, I've usually found the best way of dealing with that question is to say, to, so what do you think either is going to happen or should happen? It's interesting, and it's uh, uh, perhaps a, a demonstration of how ineffectual economics has been, uh, that most people think it's perfectly legitimate to have opinions about economics. You know, if I were to say I was, I was a physicist, I would not expect my, my neighbour to give me a lecture on physics. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To say that you just write about markets, it would do you a massive disservice. I mean, there's a, I mean, in the truth about markets, actually, I remember there's a, there's a 
section which has just completely stayed with me. Um, whenever I'm sort of writing, whenever I'm writing about government policy, um, which is on the uh, the fast breeder reactors, Britain's first generation of nuclear. Uh, nuclear power programs, where you, where you sort of point out that you know, for, for at least the first twenty years of this program, the, the economically sensible decision would have been to just want, just just drop well, it. Wipe you, off you, the money. You call it even the worst economic decision ever made by a by an advanced state, or the worst kind of mm. ma- single project ever <laughs> carried out by an advanced state. I think Hinkley Point rivals <laughs> it, which uh, shows that we don't learn very much in these areas, and that is actually very depressing. Um, it's the it's the weakness in this area of of state activity. For you know, firstly, the reason it was possible for that appalling nuclear project group of projects to take place in the way it did, very interestingly, was that it happened in the public sector and it was covered up. And really, we only learnt the truth about the nuclear program, or, or the whole of the truth about the nuclear program, when the industry was privatised and. It's a depressing fact that uh, people would lie to Parliament about the progress of these projects, but were unwilling to lie in a stock exchange prospectus, which was why, in the end, the nuclear element had to be pulled out of the, the privatisation of the electricity companies. But it, it ties in, actually, oddly, with the stuff that Corbyn and McDonald are talking about, because they're saying nationalisation is great. You know, it will be managed by, self-interest, by selfless public servants in the selfless public interest with local demo, even with local democratic control of, of the utilities and, and you know <laughs> what you sort of pointed out then is you, what you end up with is people saying oh we need a national champion in this industry and we're just yeah. going to you know we you know we can't just adopt other people's technology we need a british solution to this this problem that's right and um, you know i talk in the truth about markets about the merits of what i call disciplined pluralism and pluralism means, since we don't know very much about the future, we just have to try lots of different things. And discipline means that uh, when things don't work, you stop doing them. And the great advantage of the market is that it... it <laughs> that's what it does. That's what it does. Tesco, Tesco introduces yeah. an extra value range, you're in the finest and range. And it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. And most experiments don't work. Uh, uh, but that's fine, so long as you abandon the ones that do. And the trouble with so many public sector projects has been the absence of either pluralism or discipline. It's done by uh, you know, people who believe they know the right thing, uh, and then even if it turns out to be the wrong thing, well, this is something. So I, I was talking to David Laws about this, and, and he was sort of, he, he's now founded a think tank on education, which is its 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 explicit goal is to be the IFS of the education industry to to find out what works and what doesn't. And I said to him, "Hang on, how can you be saying that you're the you know you're setting up the IFS of the education industry when you just said we're bringing in a pupil premium for everyone in the country, we're bringing in free school meals for everyone in the country? I mean, there was no attempt to say let's bring in a pupil premium in this part of the country and not in this part of the country. And see if it let's works. Bring, let's yeah. bring in free school meals." Let's you know, let's vary the, the levels and, uh, and yeah, let's see and see what works and then roll it out from there. It's a, and it's interesting, one of the great political disasters of the modern era was the poll tax. And that was introduced in Scotland a year early, proved to be a disaster, and it didn't have the slightest effect on the <laughs> determination to introduce it across the whole country a year later. Although it just, uh, it did destroy the Conservative Party in Scotland until Ruth Davidson came yes. <laughs> You're, the, you're thinking that as a, of a benefit, it may be. Well, I'm, I'm just making the observation. <laughs> it certainly meant you get punished for it, that's right. 
what I wanted to do is actually just go back to the start and and ask sort of how you got interested in this stuff in the first place. I mean, what was it just something that you always you always uh, were you always into, or the, a parent, or a, a teacher, or a, when you were at university? No, not at all. I mean, when I when I was at school, it was in the days before economics was widely taught in schools anyway. Uh, but I'd never really heard of economics at school. And I was lucky enough to go to university in Edinburgh. I went to university to read maths because kind of if you're good at school, at maths at school, or if you're good enough at maths at school to go on to do maths, that was what you did. And then two things happened. One was one of the one things in Scotland is that you have this tradition by which, firstly, you... Uh, you have to do subjects outside your main, main specialism for a year or two. And I chose economics as one of them. And there's another Scottish tradition. I don't know if it still applies, that it's kind of the senior professor who teaches the introductory course, or at least begins it. And there was a rather inspirational lecturer called Sandy Youngson who did that. And I thought, and I thought this is really interesting. And I... To write like most people think about economics, I thought it was about uh, how growth and inflation and these big macro issues. But I discovered the nitty-gritty of microeconomics, firms and industries and so on, was, for me at least, more interesting than, than the macro stuff. And it was also easier, to, I thought, to get to answers than was true of the macro stuff. So that's been... That that was how I became an economist, and then well, you described right at the beginning how, in 1975, I was Mervyn and I were approached by IFS to help with this project on on tax reform. That was the first time I'd taken any interest in tax, but it, it turned out to be quite a large part of my life after that. Yes, because the two of you co-wrote a book, uh, yeah. which in a series of addictions on on the British tax system and, and what it should what it should become. Yes, I mean it's interesting because Mervyn and I have come back to that. I was going to say you're, 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 you're co-writing a book. Today. Yes, uh, firstly, we've been looking back on on that era. We spent a day together at the National Archives uh, a couple, couple of weeks ago, uh, looking through the Treasury and Inland Revenue, as it was responses to the work that was being done then, which was quite an interesting experience. You said you were doing two things with, with Moment King. One was looking back at your old stuff, and one is... is right, uh, one, one is new stuff. We're, we're writing a book together on the idea of radical uncertainty. In some sense, the provocation is, uh, uh, you know, why we were, were we so at sea in relation to the, the financial crisis. And part of that is people believing... They understand the environment in which they're operating much better than we actually do. And that was true both for people in commercial banks and for people in in central banks up to that time. So by radical uncertainty, we're talking about effectively what Rumsfeld famously called unknown unknowns. Things that you don't just don't know, but you don't know you don't know them. So sort of black swans? Is that the... Uh, Yeah, the black swans... A lot of people have mistaken black swans for improbable events, but that's not uh, what the metaphor is intended to mean or does mean. The point of the black swan was that people believed all swans were white until they encountered a black swan in Australia. 
where where would this sort of apply now? I guess because um, you obviously the fine, you know it's, it's it's obviously quite easy to look back and say ah oh, yes this was the this was the problem that no, no one recognised in two thousand and eight. But are you sort of diagnosing areas where you think it, it oh, is the case? Right, so? It goes much more widely than that. It goes right. Uh, really, the underlying thesis has become that the scope of probabilistic type reasoning and the models that are based on that has been wildly exaggerated. Uh, one of the really interesting things we discovered, actually, is that uh, the whole mathematics of probability was only developed in the 17th century, which seems extraordinary because, for example, the Greeks gambled quite a lot. There were people in ancient Greece who were no slouches as, about ma- as mathematicians. And the maths of probability isn't very difficult, as maths goes. And what's happening there is it's not just that people don't have the mathematical tools of probability. They don't even think about probabilities until the 17th century. The future is, is in some sense, determinate, um, it's defined by the will of the gods for most people, but you don't know what it is. And that's why you do things that now seem to us ludicrous, like consulting the entrails or something. Uh, they believe uh, that you will get closer to understanding the, the will of the gods if you do these kind of things. So that we found a quote, for example, from Gibbon, the story in the Roman Empire. This is even in the 18th century where he says about Hannibal crossing the Alps, uh, the account of Livy has more of probability. Livy's is the classic story we all know about the elephants and so on, while that of Polybius is more more of truth. And that's, to modern ear, that's a very puzzling remark. But what it means is that the account of Livy was the one which was accepted by right-thinking people which was different from it being true. And that's where people were until then. Now, we've come to the conclusion, actually, that the reason probabilistic reasoning wasn't used for a very long time, and why most people still find it difficult, um, is that it's, isn't, it's not actually all that useful. And people actually don't cope with uncertainty by thinking probabilistically. They think in terms of narrative stories. They tell they tell each other stories about the future, and they and they adjust these narratives. But they don't hold multiple narratives in their minds at the same time. Yes. So there's this very weird thing where every year, the well, twice a year until recently, but now every year, the chancellor stands up and says, "You know, I can predict. I can announce that the OBR has." Has consulted the entrails or used very powerful computers to, and it kind of exclusively reveal that our GDP growth in 2022 will be 2.3 percent, down from 2.4 percent. In 2023, it will be 1.8 percent, up from 1.3 percent. You know, and then when you actually look at the charts they're doing on these. <laughs> there's like a, a vast fan of, possi- of probabilities, you know, ranging from plus plus eight percent to minus two percent. And then actually, when you look at what what ends up happening. It's completely different it's again. It's likely to be outside that range, I know. Uh, you know. Firstly, you are never going to be able to predict that growth in uh, 2022 will be 2.3%. In fact, even after 20, 2022, you won't really know what growth has been in, 
in 2023. Uh, so we can't, we just can't have that kind of knowledge. And instead of saying, I really want, I really need to know this, uh, we need to say, we can't know this. And how do we manage in a world in which we don't? Well, I mean, so, so, I mean for example, you know, there is a forecast of what the public finances will look like in 2080, I'd say. And as which says we will have a crippling amount of debt if we carry on doing all the things we're, we're doing. And actually, as a uh, uh, Andrew Scott, who's a scientist of longevity, has pointed out, this is based on the assumption that longevity will not carry on increasing at the same rate that it has. Uh, you know, and right. so that's, well, of course, it's yeah. very interesting that longevity has, for the first time, started to decline again. And people haven't really noticed that. It has, so in true United I, States, I, it's also been true in Europe. I have to correct you on that. It's not, it's the, longevity hasn't started to decline. It's the rate, the rate of increase has, has stopped, if you see, has, has gone down, if you see what I mean. It's still. No, I, I think it's uh, worse than that. I think it's uncertain. It's it's. It will, I mean, right. Yeah, no, no, so, we don't have enough yeah, data yet yeah. to really know, but well, the, the something has clearly happened. Yeah, no. So the interesting thing, because I, so I I spent a, a couple of days looking into this. The interesting thing right. was in the US, it is due to a particular demographic that is just this kind of the deaths of despair, mm. the opioid epidemic, white working class Americans. You know that kind of yeah. tranche of you know the middle aged men shut out of the job market. It's that kind of and they have they have suffered so much that it's dragging everyone else down. Whereas in the UK, it's um, well, the leading hypothesis is actually it's due to, it's due to pressures on the NHS, just mm-hmm. that um, and and social care, just the fact that you know there just isn't as much TLC to go around because it's it, but it, it's sort of happening across society, but it's also happening you know, you know more so to the for the elderly. So it's it, it's a very interesting thing, but it doesn't seem to be driven by the same. Sorry, that, that oh, right. I although we also know that medical expenditures don't have a great effect on mortality rate. Yeah, or, or rather, the, the the cost of keeping people alive for longer goes yeah. scale doesn't scales in an, in an unfortunate fashion. But yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, so, right, so, right, right. But you're uh, and the basic point is absolutely right. We we are just in this business of pretending to know things we can't possibly know. The example I use a lot is, and is absolutely absurd is that there's a model used by the Department of Transport called WebTag. And if you're talking about a transport project in the UK that's going to get government money, you have to use this model to appraise it. Now, quite literally in that model, there are numbers for what the average car occupancy will be in 2036, between 4 and 7 o'clock on Friday evenings. You can get the predicted growth rate of the UK economy in 2080 to two decimal places. And all of this is just absurd. So, all these numbers have just been made up. And, you know, the average number of passengers in a car in 2036 may well be less than one as things are going. So how, but so how do you fix that? How do you... you well, know, we say we're not going to know these things. So we don't pretend we do. We say we're trying to build strategies that are robust a whole variety of alternative futures. We try and create organizations that can respond to different challenges in future. I very much like the story. Um, Steve Jobs is regarded as this great visionary of the uh, computer industry. And that's right and wrong. What is, what is right is that Jobs saw, um, first of all, that you 
to make personal computers take off. Uh, you had to construct a computer that you didn't need to understand computers to use. And that's a stroke of genius. And there was a replication of that genius in the incredibly user-friendly devices that Apple mm. have produced. But when Jobs went back to Apple in 1997, he was asked by Dick Rumelt, who was my favorite business strategy guru, as it were. Rommelt asked him, so what are you going to do now you're back in charge of Apple? And Jobs said, I'm going to wait for the next big thing. And actually, two years later, the next big thing became music, when downloading of music uh, started to be easy and cheap, and the music publishers screwed up by trying to suppress it. Uh, and that led to the iPod. And then the other big thing that was happening was SMS messaging was taken off, taking off. So that was the start of what we think of now as, as social media. And then the next uh, great stroke of genius was to put these things together in the smartphone. So you got that, as it were, combined the iPod and the phone. There wasn't a market for smartphones in 1997 because no one had thought of what a smartphone was in 1997. And that, that's fundamental to understanding the nature of entrepreneurship. It's interesting if you go back to what we're talking about when we're talking about radical uncertainty, is this difference between risk and uncertainty. And the person who expressed that most clearly is a guy called Frank Knight, who was in many ways founder of the Chicago School of Economics. And he made that distinction between risk, that is things you can express probabilistically, and uncertainty, which is, is things you can't. And he realized that the existence of that distinction is fundamental to entrepreneurship, because it is uncertainty that gives entrepreneurs, like jobs, the opportunity. Uh, and if, the world, if you could define anything probabilistically, there would really be nothing for an entrepreneur to do. Which sort of ties in back in with your... So it all ties in with your point about discipline pluralism, about making, making yeah. bets. And that's the fundamental dynamic of, of, of the market economy. Now, what's interesting in the way in which economics uh, evolved uh, was it, it rejected this distinction between risk and uncertainty. So that Milton Friedman, who was, as it were... Knight's successor as the, the leader of the Chicago School of Economics, Friedman would write that um, uh, Knight made distinct distinction between risk and uncertainty. I do not follow this distinction because I do not believe it is valid. We can behave, we can treat people as if they attach probabilities to every possible event. And that, and that statement... Homo economicus in, in some ways. Yeah, that, that, that's part of... That's part of how what Homo economicus is, is, is assumed to do. And that actually, that assumption lies behind with almost all the finance theory that has been developed and a good deal of the macroeconomic theory that has been developed since then, much of it from Chicago. I mean, the finance theory we, we use today actually originated in Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. And it was essentially the so-called rational expectations revolution in the 1970s 
that has come to dominate a lot of modern macroeconomics. And of course, it was that financial economics and that kind of macroeconomics that was shown to be so inadequate in the crisis of of 2008. Yes. So, so, so you, essentially, you, you and Mervyn are attempting to overturn... To overturn that particular uh, aspect of, essentially, modern economic reasoning. So, well, I mean, one final question, and it's a very, very broad one. I mean, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I mean, everyone, everyone these days seems to be leaning towards the pessimistic take um, side of... I think I am pessimistic, too. Um, you know, the kind of challenges we have now, strikingly, in British and American politics are, um, you know, really the threats to stable democratic structures of the kind we've, we've understood. In a sense, it seems to me the main political axis now is a liberal authoritarian to authoritarian axis rather than a traditional left and right one. And in that sense, one can see that, as it were, Trump and Corbyn, although they could hardly be more different characters, are, in a sense, manifestations of the same phenomenon. And in many ways, Theresa May is a natural authoritarian figure too, just not a terribly effective one, I'm afraid. I think one other, since one regarded the election of Macron in France is very encouraging. Uh, but even he seems to have rather strong authoritarian leaning, leanings as um, his uh, performance in the Elysee Palace emerges. But you won't, you won't be uh, joining a, a new liberal centre party, should, should one appear? Uh, I'm not going to join any political party, but I think we need a new centre party of some kind. Uh, John Kay, thank you very much. Pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.